Hi, I'm Cindy Zhang, and this is Tell Me Muse, a podcast where I interview recent McGill graduates to figure out what exactly is classics. Today, I'm speaking with Daniel Whittle, who is a 2018 McGill graduate currently completing a doctorate at Oxford in classical reception with funding from the Social Sciences and Humanities Council of Canada, or SHRC. Our conversation mainly focuses on how African-American authors in the 18th to 19th century in America interacted with classical texts, characters, and mythology. This is one of the most impactful conversations I've had, and I am very happy to be bringing Daniel to you. We traverse some difficult terrain, and Daniel provides some very thoughtful and reasonable responses that has helped me think through some of the difficulties that I've had and some of my concerns with the study of classics in the 21st century, given its legacy, and also how I look at the field of classical reception. I've been hoping to have this conversation for a long time now because I've been thinking a lot in my own work about what we're doing as classicists. To a large degree, those of us who are focused in literature and in the textual tradition, we have to recognize that we're limited by the sources that we have. And a large portion of our work has to do with interpretation, reading things into the text, trying to understand the author's and the cultural norms of their time through the words that they left behind for us. So what does it mean for our field when at times it feels like you can read anything into a text? And indeed, historically, the classics has been manipulated and reinterpreted time and time again, sometimes to fuel completely opposing ideologies. What do we make of all of this? What is the legitimacy in our field if this is the case? These were the kinds of questions I was dealing with as I headed into this conversation. And as you'll hear, Daniel provides some very, very good answers to these concerns and is able to draw a relatively clear line between what classical receptionists and classicists at large do and what those who are using these texts for a more insidious purpose are doing. We will talk about African-American authors from the 19th century like Frederick Douglass. We'll talk about the different themes that they draw from the classical texts. And equally importantly, we think through what the field of classical reception is doing. And we acknowledge the central place that classics has held in different societies, in different communities, and for different peoples. So without further ado, I bring to you Daniel Whittle. Hi, Daniel. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm great. Thanks so much for coming on. I'm really excited to have this important conversation with you, and I hope we can get some good dialogue going about classical reception and about the whole tradition of classical studies. So just to start us off, can you tell us a little bit about yourself, where you're from, your hobbies, anything like that? Yeah, sure. I'm Daniel, as you said. Um, I'm currently doing my PhD, or they call it here a DPhil, at the University of Oxford at um, Hartford College. I'm originally from the UK, as you can probably tell a little bit from my voice, but I've got quite a peculiar accent because I also grew up in part in Canada, uh, sort of kind of 50-50 between the two. So that's why I did uh, my studies earlier in Montreal because I was in Canada for high school, but I'm now back in the UK. Hobbies, you know, I'm, I'm the type of person who likes to be very busy. So I, I do a lot of different things. I'm on uh, here, I'm on the tennis team in part. I'm also on the, my college's university challenge team. I don't know if you guys know university challenge, but um, it's like a quiz thing. <laughs> It doesn't really matter. It's very big in the UK anyways. There's like a telly program, so I do that. I, I used to do a lot of theatre, especially when I was younger, and I'm still kind of involved in that here, doing workshops and things. But yeah, try to keep myself as busy as I can. Solid. And yeah, we had Neha on this podcast, but you were co-director with her for the Classics Play, uh, I think, was it 2019 for the Cyclops? Yes, 2019. Yeah, Meha and I are quite good friends, and we sort of had this idea that we wanted to do a Sata play, and we're pretty quirky people to say the least. So we tried to bring a lot of that quirk and enthusiasm to the Cyclops, and so that was my first real university directing experience. But I was in the classics plays acting before that. 
So you say you spent some time growing up in Canada as well. How did you end up at McGill and especially within the classics department? Like, did you know about classics beforehand or how did that happen? Yeah, so I, I went to high school in Saskatchewan, in Regina, Saskatchewan. And um, I had, for a long time, um, I wanted to stay in Canada for university and I uh, loved Montreal. I'd been there when I was younger. I was a big Montreal Canadiens fan. So uh, I loved the city and I really wanted to go there. I just really wanted to. And McGill had a reasonably good reputation. And so I was very, very keen to kind of to be in that city. And I had intended to go to university originally to go into medicine or to be a lawyer. But, but, but medicine was my first choice. And that summer before I was about to start, uh, I had a kind of sort of pseudo existential, emotional or whatever, some kind of crisis, however you want to phrase it. And I decided that I didn't want to do medicine. I was sort of frustrated by a lot of the people who I knew who were kind of going into medicine or, or were in medicine. Um, my mum's in healthcare, so some of the people I'd met were, you know, their priorities were maybe not where I thought one's priorities but should be to be a doctor and I didn't really know what to do but I did want to be away from home and, and in a cool new place and my history teacher at the time I, I did IB history she's just said you know I would do a history major just to start out declare your major as history you like it you enjoy it and then you can figure out what you want to do from there because your first year you know doesn't have to count if you don't really want it to and you can move around and I said I think that sounds like a perfectly great plan and the last thing she said, sort of almost like in a cinematic way, that I was walking away, she said, oh, by the way, I would take lots of ancient history courses because I never did ancient history when I was at university and I always regretted it. So my first term, I signed up to History 205, Ancient Mediterranean History. And I just took to it really, really well. I loved it. I loved everything about it. And the professor at the time, who I don't think would have been at McGill when you were there, I was a PhD student called Alex Macaulay, and he worked with Hans Beck, who was the main historian, the Greek historian at McGill uh, during most of my time. And they seemed to like me and they invited me to come on this research trip with sort of a group of 20 students to Greece. And once you go to Greece, you know, your heart is forever taken by that country. So I just fell in love with the whole thing and I never looked back. The next year I took ancient Greek and Latin and I I just fell in love with it. It's, it's a true love story. I can't really say it any other way. I'm very, I'm a sappy romantic person, but that's exactly what happened. That's quite beautiful and poetic. Are you still mainly focused on Greece right now in your research? Where are you at? What are you studying at Oxford? So I would say that my undergrad was a real 50-50 mix between, I did a lot of ancient history and a lot of um, literature courses. I, I loved the languages. I loved learning languages. I love studying languages. So that really captured me. Um, but I also did a, an American history joint honors with, with the classics. So that's kind of my two side. But then for my master's degree, I said I, I would say I did a pretty traditional kind of philology master's. And during my year off between my master's degree and my PhD, I just had this idea for a reception project. And as we'll get into, sort of almost in a dreamlike state, I had this idea. I wrote down the idea and I tried to kind of craft it into an abstract. And it was one of those moments where I just the ideas really flowed out. And I think I had a, a thousand words in sort of an hour. And so while I did kind of more very, I would say much more Greek literature in my master's, now I don't really do, I do kind of yes and in the sense that I study both Latin and Greek, particularly right now. I'm looking a lot of epic texts. So I'm looking a lot at the Odyssey and the Iliad, but also the Aeneid, um, and then also the Metamorphoses. So a, a great mix of, of Latin and Greek, but in the nature of reception, you can't always just focus on the Greek and the Latin versions. So I work a lot with translations as well. So, you know, one of the really important sources for my authors is Pope's translation of the Iliad and the Odyssey. So I would say, yes, I, I, I kind of work with both Greek and Latin literature, quite actively, but also in translation as much as in the original language, because a lot of the authors who I'm working with, the writers that I'm working with, weren't reading in the original Greek or Latin, and their only access to the text was through a translation. So I think that's an equally kind of important side to it, but, but a mix of kind of what you'd consider typically Greek and typically Latin 
sources for sure. Can you define for us how you understand classical reception and the specific people or the population you're looking at who are reacting to the classical past? Mm-hmm. Sure. So reception looks at what happens to ideas, images, literary motifs, really anything from the classical world, and what happens to it, or how it's sort of engaged with in more contemporary settings, be that as old as the medieval period, or even sometimes in antiquity, people do the reception. But well up to basically present day, where we look at how people stage certain tragedies, or how they take a text of the ancient world and maybe use choreography to narrate that myth or story, and what that might do, especially when we incorporate the 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 dynamics of an individual's personal experiences and how those can maybe shape what they do with that myth. You know, many of the stories. Of the ancient world have an arc that can mean a lot to a lot of different people, and where you choose to set that arc, be it set as in literally the setting in a different country, say you know Ireland during the Troubles, and um, there's been a lot of work putting Antigone in say Syrian context, things like this can be changed. The characters, the gender of the characters can be can be modelled and, and shifted and and engaged with in different ways, and so that's sort of what somebody says classical reception is. They look at these relationships and these engagements uh, in different periods. For me, I was really interested in looking at, with this kind of rise of subaltern perspectives, which is a technical term referring to any uh, most marginalized voices uh, in our society, be they along lines of race, gender, or sort of social status, or even in the case of enslaved peoples as well. Uh, So I was really interested to look at how in and the context of the Atlantic slave trade, how enslaved peoples in the 18th and 19th centuries engaged with classics and how they might use the classics in a acerbic or, or dynamic way to call back and respond to calls for pro-slavery arguments and how they would use it in their personal stories as well, which I found um, seemed to be the case. So typically, when we talk about African-American reception of the classics, people who immediately spring to mind are individuals who come from the civil rights movement, like Martin Luther King Jr., uh, with his letter from Birmingham jail, where he talks about his inspiration from Socrates, like the peaceful protest, but also people like W.E.B. Du Bois, who also stems from this kind of period, reinterpreting different characters from the past and understanding them through the lens of an African-American experience. Why is it that you chose to focus on a period before this era? So you say you start from the 18th to 19th century and end your research approximately uh, at the beginning of the civil rights movement. What drew you to this period in particular? Yeah, so in part... A lot of research has begun um, with people like Emily Greenwood, Justine McConnell, Patrice Rankin, Tracy Walters. Many scholars have done a lot of work, I think, to start looking at particularly the 20th century and understanding in a movement that's sort of been entitled either Black Classicisms, Classica Africana, sort of looking at how both African-Americans, but also Black peoples from around the Caribbean and um, elsewhere engage with classics and, and what they might do. And there's been a lot of work in the 20th century, particularly with people like M.A. Césaire, Derek Walcott, and these, I would say, somewhat more explicit or direct uses of classical reception in their narratives. And to be honest, there is, I think, still a lot of work to be done in the civil rights context. And that's something that hopefully I'd like to do going forward, particularly with someone like James Baldwin, who was very important for me sort of getting interested in this type of literature. But I was really curious when I was thinking about my doctoral research about the early roots of this tradition, because it's often kind of assumed that classical engagement can only be done when there's a formal education system which, in which the classics are such a central and kind of canonized, scare quotes, part of the education system. And I was really curious if that was actually true to be the case, because Classics has a cultural capital beyond just the education system or a kind of cultural pervasion that is much beyond just what happens in the classroom. So I was curious then how individuals would 
engage with Greco-Roman antiquity in these contexts. And so I really wanted to highlight, like I said, the early roots of what I think a lot of later figures are picking up on, especially with someone like, who we can come to in a bit, Frederick Douglass, who was probably, you know, at his time, one of the most well-read people in, not only in America, but probably in the world. And sort of the narrow way sometimes in which he's engaged with, without kind of consideration of the many, I would say rather intricate or subtle allusions he's making to a variety of different literatures really kind of caught my attention. And so I was curious to look into it and then hopefully see a kind of growing tradition of engagement um, with classics that might one day connect to some work in the kind of civil rights era. Could you tell us a little bit more about Frederick Douglass, how he approached the classics and perhaps also how he was introduced to it? Mm-hmm. So the way he acquired literacy was through the fact that he was a part of a few different plantations. And in one particular plantation, the master's wife began to teach him to read one day. She seemed to think it was important. And Frederick Douglass kind of demonstrated, I think, at least from the way he portrays an intellectual capability very early on. He seemed very capable and very eloquent from a, from a very young age. So she began to teach him to read. But all of us, very suddenly after this began, the master found out and immediately lambasted and, and became very, very aggressive, kind of catching him to, uh, while he was learning to read or being taught to read and refused him any more lessons. And the way it's positioned, particularly in My Bondage and My Freedom, which is his second autobiography, is this was a real eye-opening moment for Frederick Douglass in which he realized that the reason why slave owners didn't want their enslaved uh, individuals to be able to read was because literacy and education was a path to freedom. That's how kind of how he frames it. And he frames it particularly for him as being his way out of being enslaved um, or enslavement. And so from then on, he undergoes this clandestine education in which he will use spare change that he can acquire from little odd jobs to pay um, local school children to give him their books, or he'll do jobs for them as a way to kind of have half an hour with their English textbook or something like this. And then he's also able to get access to this text called the Columbian Orator, which is a manual on rhetoric and, and oratory, essentially, which features a lot of classical texts. And from then on, I think Douglas becomes incredibly fascinated by literature and incredibly engaged with European intellectualism as well. He travels to Europe a lot and he spends a lot of time in these kind of parlor circles with European intellectuals. And I think through that, classics is such a dominant part of the European intellectual psyche that he himself becomes very engaged with it. And locally, because Douglas is so famous and we know so much about him in comparison to other people, we know his library. We have a catalog of his personal library and we see on his shelf not only editions of the Iliad and the Odyssey, but kind of works of Virgil in the original languages as well. He has Pope's translations of the Iliad and the Odyssey, but he has also Greek versions of the Iliad and the Odyssey, and also a Latin version of the Aeneid, and some of Virgil's other works as well. And his bookshelf is just filled with loads of classics. And he even has Greek grammar books and Latin grammar books. So that, to me, indicates at least some development or some interest in learning the original languages as well. So then his engagements with classics, I think he sees it twofold. He sees it both as something just he's interested in, but also as a way to speak in a kind of language that that is used to oppress him. And he can use that language in a subversive way to redirect and argue the opposite of what is being kind of charged against him. And that is in part something that I think he's fascinated by doing, sort of reappropriating, appropriating is a word that Emily Greenwood likes to use a lot, and I, I favor in a lot of ways. But he, he favors that, I think, for the reason that, that he, he finds there's a lot of space within the ancient narratives to, to work within his own experience and convey the pain of his experience. But also, he has individuals like Thomas Jefferson in the background, obviously, before his time, who would use classics as a criticism of um, African-American experience or Black enslaved experience, or even 
more contemporary with him, John C. Calhoun, has this quite famous line where he says that if he if you could find a and he uses a rather derogatory word which I won't repeat but if you can find an individual um, an African American or black individual who can read Greek then I would agree that we should uh, agree with abolition but obviously it's kind of a, a, a counterfactual to, to call on my philology background but it's kind of a counterfactual to say that he doesn't believe that anyone who doesn't have white skin can read ancient Greek or be able to, which is fundamentally a phrenological type argument, right? The intellectual capacity is reduced and most people deserve to be enslaved, which is a racist argument that is employed by all kinds of anti-abolitionists. But yeah, so I think then Douglas then sees, well, not only will I show you that the people who you don't think can, can engage with the classics, but I'm going to sort of take that one step further and even outdo what you're saying. And I'm going to repurpose the classics within my life and show how my stories actually have these kind of classical reflections or mirrors. It's unbelievably impressive and incredibly uh, innovative um, by so many writers at this time, what they're able to do with the classical texts and so subtly be so subversive. It's, it, that's why I find it so fascinating. I do want to get into specific cases and examples of African-American authors using classical tropes of this period. But I was wondering first, especially in the case of Douglas, where he was educated to read, and I'm guessing he was reading mostly classical texts when he was just gaining literacy. Do you think his use later on, his incorporation of classical themes has to do with some sort of universal appeal of the classics that speaks to people from different cultures and different experiences? Or does this stem mostly from the importance that classics played in education in the 19th century? And so, you know, he's learning, but his, the only kind of knowledge he's gaining is through a classical lens. So that's the kind of the only language he has to use to express his own experiences. I think it's kind of a combination of, I think that we can't ignore the kind of cultural phenomenon that is classics in terms of both oppression, imperialism, and elitism at this time. And, and that's one of the motivations I think Douglas has for wanting to engage. In part, he's also just very engaged with a variety of different literatures. He's, he's so well read and so widely read that he incorporates a lot but I have a, a kind of quote that begins a lot of my work, and it's from James Baldwin, actually, where he talks about sitting in a library. And the education system he came through was very much told that he, as a person racialized as black in America, particularly at the time when he was growing up, essentially told him that the, the, the black experience was not one that was in the education system. The people they read were sort of dominantly white authors. And so, but yet he would sit in the library and found these what he calls connections. He began to see connections between the books that he was reading and the life that he led. And I think it's very, very similar for Douglas. I think he would read a lot of these works and begin to see reflections of his own life and, and in a very different way that other people experience it. When I first began engaging with Douglas, one of the things was immediately stark to me, his portrayal of the plantation and his experience of the plantation is framed as this kind of descent into what he calls hell, but is rife with all kinds of classical imagery in connection with the underworld. And for me, that was particularly fascinating because that shows that Douglas sees his experience as comparable to something which no kind of human mortal can experience, right? It's something superhuman. I don't mean superhuman as in a superhero, but as in beyond the human experience, the kind of cruelty, the intensity of the enslaved experience. So I think it's fascinating that then he can relate that to a kind of hellish experience, but not one that he believes he's being punished for, which would be the kind of more Christian concept of hell, but just kind of an underworld where there is suffering because that is the afterlife and the nature of it, or there's a bleakness to it, and that is the nature of the afterlife. So I think, I think in part he saw that, but I also believe he used that as a kind of common language. So a considerable part of the audience for his autobiographies is a white audience because he's arguing the case for abolition. And so in many ways, the classical language, because of its dominance in the European 
white European intellectual culture and the relatability which he finds in it, it kind of bridges a gap between those two worlds. Whereas people may not be able to understand or really maybe not understand, but they'd be kind of disillusioned by this idea of the cruelty of slavery and almost disbelieve it because it's so distant from their own world. And that could have been the case. Whereas if you put it in the terms of a common or a, a kind of universal model of an underworld, of a hero trying and, and, and sort of toiling as a way to get out of this bleak, shaded, gloomy experience. And it connects to a world which they have some knowledge of. I think that kind of bridges the gap between those two worlds. So it's, there's, there's a lot of very complicated reasons as to why. And, and some of them, I think I'm still yet to uncover. Of course, I'm only in my first year. So I'm still trying to think about these questions, but it's, it's contained in so many different ways and so many different experiences of what Douglas is trying to, I think, convey with this endeavor. And you've very nicely sort of outlined for me my next question, which is, can you talk us through one of the themes that Douglas seems to focus on drawing from the classical past, which is katabasis? You've already kind of defined it, but could you do so in more concrete terms and tell us where it's located within the Greco-Roman tradition? Yeah, sure. So a katabasis, um, it comes from the, the Greek verb, if you want, for your, the Greek fans are there from katabino, which is essentially a journey by a Greco-Roman hero into the underworld. They may do a variety of things while they're down there, but the intern, a katabasis, is only truly confirmed by its kind of opposite, which is an anabasis, which is a journey out of the underworld. In antiquity, we find these in kind of loads of different models. The most famous examples are Aeneas. Aeneas famously goes into the underworlds to get information from his father and then journeys outwards. Um, we have Orpheus with the famous Orpheus and Eurydice story, which is now popular with things like Hades Town, the musical, which is very, very kind of famous. And he descends into the underworld to try and persuade the gods to let him be reunited with his partner Eurydice, whose life was cut tragically short. And of course, the gods, there's usually some kind of moral lesson in this, and the gods say, oh, well, Eurydice, you, you're allowed to go back, but you have to walk behind Orpheus, and Orpheus is never allowed to look back until you cross the boundary out of the underworld. But of course, Orpheus is sappy and can't wait a minute longer, and he's worried that she's not with him. And he turns back, and he tries to reach out for her, but she's taken back to the underworld because he didn't follow the rules. And then in the context of Douglas, his ideas of catabasis are very much framed with the kind of broader phenomena of catabasis, that is the trialing nature of these journeys within and then the trialing nature of these journeys outwards. We can see in the way that he frames the plantation that it's rife in characterizations of a kind of underworld space. During this cinematic overview of the plantation, he talks a lot about the fact that it's haunted and haunted with shades and ghosts and the fact that around the, at a, at a certain part of the plantation, there's a, a house of the dead where the enslaved people who were murdered or just worked to death, they're now inhabit in this kind of liminal space between reality and, and the afterlife. And he himself starts his life not at this plantation, but at his grandmother's house. And she brings him there. And the whole journey there is framed as going through this shaded forest with actually he sees monsters in the forest trying to come out to get him. And it feels very much like Aeneas's journey. And then when he's there, he inhabits this kind of living death. You know, Orlando Patterson's famous book on the slave experience talks about a living death. And, and Douglas very much um, uses the language that Patterson later picks up on. And he speaks of his experience of being enslaved as not having a life because it's not your life. It's the life of someone else that is owned and traded. And so then his journey outwards is this kind of ascension. And, and it's, it's not surprising in some ways because the language in generally of freedom versus bondage in America in particularly is, you know, up from slavery or you go down into slavery. So you can see the kind of ascent and descent ideas that, that are obviously contained in the catabasis as well. And the last thing I would say, I think in particular why Douglas likes the catabasis is that his middle name that is assigned to him that he later gets rid of by when he's born 
in bondage is Augustus. And so, so I think he then sees later in life a kind of desire to reclaim this identity that was somewhat with a, with a high sense of irony placed on him. There's a lot of work um, done by Margaret Williamson on naming practices among enslaved peoples and classical names are used all the time as a kind of diminishing uh, irony, a very cruel way to sort of mock them for their position. And so I think then Douglas really wants to reclaim the title of Augustus. Well, how do you reclaim Augustus? Well, you make yourself Aeneas in some ways or, or an equivalent to him as well. Do we see any parallels in other authors of this time uh, through the use of this theme or perhaps others? Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, that's kind of what I'm, I'm starting to work on now, kind of branching out and seeing how people use um, Catabasis elsewhere. And I think, for example, Elauda Equiano, who's a, probably the earliest memoir we have written by an enslaved person, he actually even quotes Pope's Iliad in his memoir, sort of to show his kind of engagement or familiarity with the classical. But I think he frames himself very much in the light of Odysseus. And so Odysseus has this kind of catabasis, kind of, where he sails up along the shore and performs a necuria. So you put a little bit of blood on the ground and then the spirits drink the blood and then they can talk to you. And all of that is right with this imagery of like the shades of the people come up and only when the shades are able to engage with the, the mortal world, which is through this blood, can they communicate with Odysseus. And Equiano has this really interesting moment where he, now free, is on a ship and he travels past an island in the Caribbean and he sees a, or at least the prep of a slave auction about to occur. And he frames it exactly in the same way, sort of observing these shades, but the shades can't communicate with him because they don't have this tie to the mortal world, this kind of branch, this branch that is, in Odysseus' case, the blood, which then he sees as the branch he frames as being a kind of journey out of, um, out of bondage. So that's one really interesting example, which I've just started to engage with. There's also Harriet Jacobs is quite a famous example. And I think there's a lot of efforts in her book to frame herself in terms of Persephone, especially because she experienced a lot of sexual violence in her experience of being a slave. And I think that reason she connects a lot with the experience of the kind of stealing of Persephone and the confinement and the restriction of her ability to leave and um and so, so i think there's stuff there there's also a really really quite um interesting figure called george moses horton in his day he's framed as what they call the black bard of north carolina and he's the first black individual in north carolina to ever publish anything but he actually writes poetry and he only gains his freedom when the Emancipation Proclamation comes in during the Civil War. So he's never able to escape or, or buy his way out of bondage. And he writes these really interesting poetry books, some of which are abolitionist poems where he critiques slavery or he critiques the kind of selling off of slaves at an auction or the redistribution of enslaved peoples when um, an estate is kind of distributed, when an individual dies, things like this. Sometimes he just talks about being in love. Sometimes he talks about very mundane things, but he frames himself, I think, very much so as a kind of both Ovid and Orpheus figure. He has this really interesting poem called On Creation, and the parallels and the allusions that he makes with Ovid's The Beginning of His Metamorphoses, where he talks about the creation and like chaos. They both use the word of chaos and the sun rising, and, and these ideas are contained within. So that's very interesting in the sense that if he's framing himself as kind of an Ovid and then further over when he has this muse and Orpheus figure, what does that say about how he then thinks about his catabasis? Because um, Orpheus is obviously one of the most famous examples of it. So I, I, I could go on and on and on and there, there are even more people. There's, there's a, one individual whose name I still am, I won't say, but I can maybe post if you want to write it out because I don't know how to pronounce it. Um, they have these kind of dream realities of um, this kind of dream reality mix in their narrative wherein you don't quite know sometimes when you're reading their story if they're dreaming or if they're not and even the author says you know at one point he's beaten very violently by um, his owner and 
he wakes up with blood pouring down his forehead and he says, but I cannot tell you for sure whether what happened was a dream or if it truly happened. He says things like that, which is really, really interesting. And then he has this moment where he imagines um, maggots uh, eating his liver, which is interesting in the sense of obviously classical ideas of consuming the liver. Um, but then the fact that it's maggots also then really puts us in a kind of an undead realm, right? Because when your body's on the ground, maggots will eat you type idea. And he says that furies kind of chase after him and, and they try to capture him, but then a spirit lifts him up to the sky. So he's kind of descended into the underworld where he's kind of in this fury realm and he descends to the sky or he ascends so to the sky, um, which I think is his anabasis. And then he flies above Africa. And so for him, the kind of descent is enslavement, but the anabasis would be returning back to Africa, which is kind of a movement that, that gains a lot more traction later with Marcus Garvey. But, but anyways, he, he then has this sort of anabic experience and then he's dropped back down and he descends again back into his actual reality and he's reminded that he's in fact still enslaved. But I, so I think there's, there's a whole variety in a ways, you know, as many individuals as there are in the world, there are kind of diverse um, engagements with the classics and so people do it, use it in different ways but for those are just a few examples which I've been working on but it's very very complicated and diverse interactions with something even as simple as catabasis which is only my first theme but who knows where it's going to go from here. So. This is fascinating that you see individuals interacting with not just themes and scenes from the Greco-Roman legacy but also individual characters as well and this kind of deep set emotional connection that you feel from reading these tales and empathizing with these figures from the past or from mythology. I want to ask and move on to talk about some bigger themes about the field of classical reception. So these are things that I've been thinking about a lot, especially in my last year, how classics is evolving as we're in the 21st century and looking back at the legacy of not just how the ancients understood previous ancient authors and texts, but also the whole tradition of classical scholarship and how it's been used throughout more modern history for different movements and purposes. So it's a big question, but I really just want to get your opinion about how you view the field of classical reception especially since we as classicists are in a kind of unique position because we're limited by our sources. And, uh, you know, those sources have come down to us for different reasons, preserved by different groups for their own distinct purposes. And so a lot of our research and what we can understand about the ancient world is based on interpretation, which is going to be subjective um, at each stage along the way of textual transmission. How do we, you know, reckon with that? What is the sort of legitimacy of a field wherein most research that we're doing is based on subjective understandings of the text? Mm -hmm. Well, I, I think it's, it would be a real shame if anyone would sort of go into studying classics thinking that it's nice and convenient in terms of classroom structures to think the ancient world ends in X date. And that's the ancient world over with, and that's where the category stops. And I understand the convenience of that. But in a lived reality, the story of classics does not stop when, you know, say Rome falls, whatever that means, whatever it means for Rome to fall anyways. But to think that even the story, if you want to put a kind of full stop there, ends in any way, I think, is a foolish reality to try and abide by in the sense that the way then these texts and these materials even. Um, I went to a debate just the other week on repatriation concerning the Parthenon marbles. So even we can think about the way materials, um, the, the life that they inhabit is still very much present in our culture. And one cannot sort of ignore this reality because whether or not we want to deny it, that impacts the way we study certain things. Like you said, not only does it determine what texts were preserved, some of the texts that we have are purely accidental. Some are because of this kind of canonized structure, wherein they were copied loads and loads of times by monks in a certain period, in a certain period of time, for whatever convenient reasons. And remember, we have, I think I read once, 1% of classical texts. So we love to speak of kind of, oh, we know what Greek tragedy was like, based on a very small percentage of what that is. And so I think 
the reason why I find reception so fascinating is that basically I acknowledges this lived experience of the classical world beyond this kind of contained timeline of when people were speaking ancient Greek or when people were speaking classical Latin and shines a light on that and shows how that affects the way that we now study classics. For example, I was surprised how little work there is at all on looking at how enslaved peoples engaged with the classical world. There's very little work done. And that's because of this still current, and I would say very prejudicial opinion, that enslaved peoples didn't have access to classics because classics is inherently an elitist study, which certain people in certain times had access to. Well, I think that's, well, it's, I would say that's completely inaccurate, but the fact that we still, as a standard, presume that shows a lot about what happens to the classics beyond its kind of contained timeline. So I would say that the reason why then reception is so important is that we as a field or a discipline are in a slight moment of crisis. And I think in part that crisis, I would say a lot of it, almost exclusively that crisis is self-inflicted by refusing to kind of acknowledge the realities of the role that classics played in crafting and sort of creating the dimensions of imperialism and the imperialist mindset. The constructions of race, I think, are very much rife with the kind of a idealized idea of the classical past. And so we have to acknowledge these things going forward if we want to then continue to present the relevance of these classical materials in the classrooms to students today. I think that answers at least some of your questions. Some of them are, are so massive and maybe I, I can, we can keep going. No, that was fantastic. And I think is in line with a lot of my own thinking into this area. I also wanted to get your opinion on terms like co-option and appropriation. You know, in colloquial language, these terms are often used, and especially in the classical context, in a negative light. The first thing that springs to mind when we talk about like co-option of classics is notoriously the Nazi movement, right? Taking these ideas from Greco-Roman antiquity and then misreading them, sometimes intentionally so, to exclude certain peoples and to propagate an ideology that is completely at odds, or there is a disconnect at least with what the ancients thought. But see, the things that are happening in the 18th and 19th century African-American population in America, that also is an interpretation of the classics. Should we also call that an appropriation or a co-option of the classics in the same way? Does there need to be a different term for this kind of use of classics? Or should we completely rethink how we understand a co-option and its adjacent terms? I think in part, so I, I've used some of those words in my research. For the reason, so I think that sometimes co-option is a very intentional action, a kind of subversive co-option where we have a good example there with Phyllis Wheatley is really, really hyper aware in a very interesting way of how particularly white male poets are particularly keen to sort of look to the, this kind of descent of the Western culture and the fact that they are taking up the mantle, so to say, from this classical past that is, of course, and I'm being sort of framing it in their mindset, that is, of course, a white male poetic tradition that they are now taking up. Um, and I think Wheatley exposes how wildly inaccurate and uh, reading this is of history and she in one of her poems takes up Terence and Terence the kind of mythology around the comic playwright is that he was of African descent and she then kind of co-ops Terence I think in a subversive way to say this is my intellectual forefather so to say that I'm now taking up the mantle from and this kind of rich African tradition of poetics so I think in that way, you can look and see how co-option is kind of done in this intentionally, probably subversive is probably the better, intentionally subversive way. Douglas, for example, is, makes very clear, and I think in a lot of his other writing, that he does not believe that the white European culture around him has any ownership of the classical world. I think he tries to make that abundantly clear and is very dismissive of this attitude of in, not in these terms, because this is a more modern construction of the kind of the, this idea that the Western tradition, you know, is becoming more common. So I just think, well, it doesn't really exist. Like the West is a model and it's an idea. 
in his own way, Douglas is criticizing this a very similar model. But Douglas would by no means ever presume to have any more ownership over the classics than the people who he's criticizing to claim to have an ownership over the classics. So that's why I think he's keen to kind of appropriate in some ways, and not in the same negative or derogatory sense, like you alluded to the beginning, but kind of appropriate in a way to say, I'm going to do what you're doing to show you that these are not things that can be owned, but rather things that can be engaged with. And so that's why I think this word can be quite helpful. But you're right, it is very complicated when we think about the fact that, you know, you mentioned the Nazi movement, but even today, the voice of white supremacy in our society that though some may deny that it is still a huge component is I think they're incorrect to say so it's there's a huge white supremacist voice that still exists in our society that uses classics to advocate and justify their prejudicial and racist opinions and when writing any kind of classics one has to be aware of this but I would say especially so when thinking about reception and even in the time period when I'm looking at classics as used as a weapon to diminish and um, degrade people in, in sometimes intellectual, sometimes emotional, but even in physical ways. And that reality can't be ignored. Right. And there's definitely evidence of willful misreading of ancient texts on behalf of the white supremacist movement. But I'm wondering if you see any of that on the other side, too, where you have minority groups who are reacting to the ancient past and also might be maybe modifying some of the details and some of the facts in an attempt to relate to it in some way and how far that goes. Yeah, I think I think there are huge practices, for example, of what um, Tracy Walters is a very big scholar who started a lot of this movement, what I would like to call reinterpretations. There's a very kind of malleable nature of classical myths. And so I have very few examples wherein a writer will take this story and transpose it in this experience. There's a much more kind of hazy experience. And there's kind of like little pieces flutter in and flutter out as they, as they may do. And there's a, there's a real reinterpretation of classical characters and stories in this model. Um, that's definitely done so. But it's, I, I don't think it's ever done in the same way with this kind of denial of of, of the reality of it. For example, you know, Medea, the play Medea has got like a lot of popularity. It's, you know, Euripides is the playwright at the moment, you know, but I think that's in part because there's a lot of space in Euripides plays to attach kind of more contemporary ideas through the mouthpiece of these ancient um, references. And so Medea in one context is a villain and another is kind of a, maybe reinterpreted as a kind of feminist hero who resists a rather unfair and cruel kind of patriarchal society and naturally the the ancient story is not (laughs) you can't just take it as a one for one and so there is a degree of reinterpretation doing that but I think that's with a sensitivity to lived experiences whereas I think in the context of white supremacist reimaginings of the classical past they are just in denial about what the classical past was like they presume this kind of white you know 1950s 1960s film model of what the ancient world looks like where everyone was white spoke with british accents and i'm by Brit- british accents i mean the queen's accent not any kind of sort of local dialects and they carried themselves in a way that was essentially christian but they didn't have Christianity quite yet, but we'll forgive them for that. We'll just make it seem like they did, you know, and they wore these, these outfits that we've imagined they wore and, and these kind of things. And so that's what I would say is the difference is that often the experiences that, that particularly I'm looking at and a lot of people looked at in terms of reception in the 20th century and um, by people is they're always done with a thoughtfulness. That's not to say that, you know, X author takes of it and, and perfectly transmits it. And even we, we spoke at the beginning about, um, the play that I did and famously Neha and I like to always claim we don't claim it was in fact said but but we were very very sort of thrilled at the time because Edith Hall called our play a perfect piece of reception so we were chuffed for still still to this day thank you and we featured salt and pepper's push it well let's get real there's probably not a kind of comparable song in the ancient world but it's more about we very thoughtfully approached 
the kind of vibe and the atmosphere that is a Saturday play, a kind of raucous spectacle. And how did we transmit that to modern day? Well, we used pop songs to do so. And so I think that's the difference between reception and kind of wrongful misreading is the, the, thought, the thoughtfulness that goes into it. And I think that the, the problem is the, the thoughtlessness for a long time had a very loud mouthpiece in our society. Well, we can definitely, I think, talk about this for another hour or so about the different uses of classics and maybe how to draw that dividing line between what is genuine good faith effort at interpretation and um, political ideology on the other side. But I do recognize that our hour is coming to an end here, uh, and I'm very grateful for your time. So I just want to squeeze in one last question. What does classics mean to you? What does classics mean to me? That's a great question. Well, I'm quite grateful um, in some ways for, you know, the very fortunate experiences that I've had, not only getting to be in such a wonderful place that is Montreal, but getting to be in the McGill Classics Department was a real joy and I loved it. And um, getting to be here now, I still kind of sometimes have to convince myself that I'm actually in such an incredible place, which is not something that anyone in my family ever would have kind of dreamed of the opportunity to do. So I'm, I consider myself very lucky. But classics always for me and what first was really interesting to me about classics and what made me so passionate about it was that I always say to people that studying classics is just a long-winded effort or a long-winded engagement with compassion and that's to say that if you can read these works or, or look at this object that's from a culture not only so geographically distant from us especially in Canada you know, Greece is a long long way away but chronologically distant from us and feel sympathy and compassion for these people's lived experiences, I think then it makes trying to feel compassion towards anyone within our world in the modern day a lot easier. And so for me, what does classics means to me is I think it's just experience of trying to be compassionate for the people who have lived a life very different from my own and have a very different human experience from my own. But that doesn't mean I can't try to understand or, or be curious about their experience you know there's that ted lasso has made famous this kind of walt whitman phrase of like um, be curious not judgmental and i think classics is a perfect way to be incredibly curious about the human experience and to try and understand people that's beautiful and i completely completely agree thank you so much daniel you've given me a lot of food for thought and a great conversation I hope to talk to you again soon. Yeah, thank you very much. And thank you uh, for inviting me on the show. And I hope everything is great in the McGill Classics Department. You've been listening to my conversation with Daniel Whittle about African-American reinterpretations and interactions with classical themes and mythology. Questions for this podcast were created with the help of Zoe Luchet and Charlene Frigambeaupré. Cover art for the podcast was created by Taya Kendall, music by Matthew Hawkins. The podcast is also created with funds from the Arts Undergraduate Society and the Financial Management Committee at McGill University. We also thank McGill Campus Radio, CKUT, for their recording equipment and room. I'm Cindy Zhang, and thank you for listening to Tell Me Muse.